All of that having been said, now open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24, and it's going to help if I get there as well. All right, Matthew 24, we are in the Olivet Discourse, and all of this goes back to the question that the disciples asked. Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And as Jesus moves in to this two-chapter-long answer to that question, we saw that he started by really addressing the signs. He started by talking about those things that would accompany and then those things that would immediately precede the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory. And then, last week, we started to take that turn away from the what will accompany that and toward the when will these things happen. Uh, The disciples we're probably hoping for something more specific. I know that as we read through these things, often we would hope for more specifics, that we would know exactly when he's coming. But Jesus speaks in very broad terms. He gives that illustration of the fig tree, or in Luke's gospel, the fig tree or any tree. When you see leaves come into bloom, when you see the tree begin to change, then you know that the season is changing. And in much the same way, when you see these particular signs beginning to take place, then you know that the Son of Man is near, right at the door that the king and his kingdom are imminent. They are right at the doorstep, ready to burst into human history. Uh, So we might not know a day or an hour. In fact, he goes on to say that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man in his humility at that point knew the day or the hour of his coming, but we know that his coming is sure. See, Jesus unfathomably became like us in the incarnation Uh, taking on flesh, being found in appearance as a man, humbling himself, doing the will of the Father, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his humility, he was made a faithful and merciful high priest for us. And all through his earthly ministry, although Jesus lived in perfect dependence on the Spirit, in perfect obedience to the will of the Father, not knowing the specific hour of his coming, never diminished the fact that he knew that he was coming again. It never impacted his ability, his will, to do the will of the Father, and so neither should it impact ours. Simply because we cannot point to a specific day and time when he is coming again doesn't take away from the fact that that promise is still going to be fulfilled. And much more than that, it doesn't limit or hinder our ability to be obedient as we wait for that time. And that's what he focuses on now, again, for the next several verses. He gives these pictures, he gives these repeated calls to be found ready. And that's where we're going to go today. That we are to be a people who live life expecting what in many ways is unexpected because the king is coming again. And just like in the days of Noah, it is going to catch people off guard. But when it did, when the flood came and swept people away in judgment, it wasn't because they didn't have information. It wasn't because they didn't have warning. It was simply because their sinful hearts were darkened. They were hardened to what God had said, we cannot be in the same position, this same warning, because you know what is coming, be ready for the coming of the Son. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to begin reading in verse 40, which is where we'll start today, and I'll read all the way through verse 44. The plan will be to cover the rest of the chapter, but we'll read that little portion to kind of set the stage for where we're going. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 40. It says, then two men will be in the field, One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready." 
for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that are good at being ready when we expect what is coming. If we have an appointment, if we have a day or a time, then we will typically order our schedules in a way that's appropriate. Lord, we're not a people that are good at being surprised. We're not a people whose default situation is normally readiness. God, I pray that you would challenge our hearts to work on that. I pray that you would convict us of those places where we've gotten lazy or apathetic toward the fact that you are coming again. Lord, so we ask that as we go through this chapter that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we need you to open our eyes. We bring darkness, we bring stubbornness, we bring our agendas and our assumptions. Lord, open our eyes. And do that so that we might see the truth of who you are and ultimately so that we might respond rightly. We need your help to do all of those things. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when I was in high school, very, very briefly in my freshman year, I was a part of the ROTC program there. Um, not long into the school year, but at least over the summer beforehand, uh, I was a part of that and was looking forward to going into that. And we had this summer camp situation uh, that we went to, and that was at Castle Air Force Base up in Central California. And uh, not much to see or do around there. And I don't remember a whole lot about the camp other than marching and push-ups and cleaning a lot, way more than I was used to. Uh, if you knew what my room situation looked like, it would have been appalling to you. And uh, there were habits that needed to change. But regardless, one of the things that I do remember about that particular camp was where we stayed. And you see a picture of it right there. It was these old strategic air command uh, quarters. And they were partially underground and partially above ground, and they had these tunnels that went right out pretty much onto the airstrip there. And that's because these quarters housed teams of men that were set into shifts that were always ready. This was built and designed that during the Cold War, no matter where the threat came from, there would be planes that were ready to launch in response within 10 to 15 minutes. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, there were men who lived at the ready to respond to a threat that they didn't know where it would be coming from, where it would be going to, or what the extent of it would be. It was a very particular way to run a unit. A unit that didn't have a plan necessarily, but that had a plan that was always ready to be implemented. In much the same way, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that to be a servant of the master, that to be one of his people, will mean living a life at the ready. Particularly because you do not know when the sun is coming. It's an alertness that impacts the way that we think. It's an alertness that impacts the way that we order our life and our schedule. It's an, impact, it's an alertness that changes the way that we live. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to work through the rest of Matthew 24, and we're going to work through two particular illustrations that talk about being ready, about expecting the unexpected. And the first one of these illustrations picks up right where we left off last week, again, kind of in the middle of a context even. And this one deals with being wakeful and watching. Uh, 
and the way that it's going to start because of where we're picking up, we're going to kind of start with the application and then move into the illustration itself. Uh, Jesus gives a warning and a command, and then he moves on to kind of picture why that is and what it looks like. So let's look at verse 40, and we're going to pick up very much where we left off at last week. Then two men will be left in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. And I want to remind you again that we break from week to week, but this is all given in one context, in one flowing teaching of what Christ has said. So don't read a hard stop in between verse 39 and 40. That would make it very, very difficult and uh, maybe even very confusing as to what he's talking about here. Uh, because we go from talking about the days of Noah to talking about now uh, men working in a field or women working at the mill, one being taken and one left. And there are many good and godly people that I respect greatly who take this and they, they use it to refer to something that we call the rapture. And uh, we could spend a lot of time going into the rapture and talking about the timing and the passages that deal with that, and that would be very interesting. It would be potentially very fruitful, but it would also carry us far away from Matthew's gospel in the context where we're at here. So just very briefly, when we talk about the rapture, if you've never heard that term before, the idea of the rapture is when Christ calls his people to himself. Uh, we see it in 1 Thessalonians, well, we read out of 1 Thessalonians 5 today, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, the idea that those who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ will be caught up to meet him in the air and there will be with him always. And there are a number of different views on when this happens. And uh, there are a number of different places and contexts and passages that we could go to. Uh, but I'm going to kind of move beyond those things and simply tell you that I don't think this is a rapture passage at all. Because in the context here, what he's talking about is people being swept away, carried away, and if we were to pull back for just a moment and not dive in right at verse 40, we'd be reminded that the context here is judgment. What did he say immediately preceding this that we looked at last week? As in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. In the days of Noah, they were living life just as they always had, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And in a moment, they were swept away in their judgment. And if you look at this next, the parallel here that he says in verse 40, two men will then be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women grinding at the mill. These other daily activities, normal daily activities that people will be living and walking in. And in a moment, they will be swept away. They will be carried away. That's the most natural, immediate context to read into that. And then if you were to go further, the next four pictures that he gives talk about being ready when the sun comes in judgment. A master of the house who doesn't know when the thief is coming. A wise and a wicked servant who doesn't know when the master is returning. If you were to turn to the first part of chapter 25, wise and foolish virgins who are called to be ready. Starting in verse 14, the parable of the talents being prepared for when the master returns. And then you come to Matthew 25, verse 31, when the narrative picks up again, after these illustrations that Jesus gives, the first thing that he talks about in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a, separ as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The context here isn't calling his people to himself. The context here is the master coming and the master coming in separation and in judgment. Now again, that doesn't have a huge impact on how you view the chapter as a whole, but it does help us see that Jesus is moving this argument through consistently and that the theme here is to be ready. 
The context is judgment. People are going to be living as if this judgment is never coming, as if nothing is ever going to change in life. And the master is going to come. The Lord is going to come. The son of man is going to return when they do not expect it. And Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Because the day and the hour are known only to the Father, because the Son is going to come in judgment when people are not prepared, you, those of you who call Him Lord, must be ready. You have to be characterized by wakefulness and watchfulness. That is the application of this whole section. And really, if you want to pull it back and come up with an application that covers broadly the entire Olivet Discourse, that's it. Be ready, for the Master will return. Don't just hear what Jesus says and process it as interesting information. Uh, Don't just work through the Olivet Discourse and add it as one more kind of theological piece that you have in your puzzle. The idea is that this is not something that is going to matter someday when the end comes. The idea is that understanding that the end is coming impacts the way that you live now. Understand that the sun is coming. Understand that the days are going to be dark and difficult. Understand that the time of his coming is unknown to anybody except the Father. And because all of that is true, you have to be ready, not at a particular time. You who are his people are called to be ready at all times. In the beginning in verse 43, he gives an illustration that kind of plays into that, that demonstrates what that would look like. Verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and he would have not let his house be broken into. That's a pretty clear picture. Thieves break in and steal. And thieves typically do that when they expect the least resistance. They come in quietly. They come in under the cover of darkness. They come, uh, their desire is to take what they want and then to leave without a problem. Thieves do not typically drive around the neighborhood knocking on doors and asking when it would be convenient for them to come back. If someone came up to your house and knocked on the door and said, you know, I was just casing the neighborhood, as a good thief does, and I noticed that you have that 80-inch flat screen there in your living room, and I really want that. And so I was planning on coming back sometime between, I don't know, midnight and two tonight, if that would be convenient for you. Uh, If you could just leave your door unlocked, I'll come in and I'll grab it and I'll be on my way. If you knew that a thief was coming at a particular time, what would you do? The doors would be locked. The lights would be on. Some of you would be sitting, maybe armed, if I know some of you, in your living room. The rest of you would have your phones there ready to call the police the moment that car pulled up toward your driveway or even crossed your field of view. You would be ready. You would not simply stand idly by. You are not going to binge watch Netflix in the bedroom and then fall asleep in a coma in the third season of some show that you don't really care about, but it's got your attention. That's what he's saying. Because you don't know when the thief comes, you're ready for it. And Jesus puts the application again there on the end. Therefore, you must be ready. But the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The temptation and the tendency for all of us is to move toward laziness. The tendency of human nature is toward spiritual apathy. 2 Peter chapter 3, we referenced that last week, and it makes the same point. At the end, there's going to be mockers, scoffers who come with their scoffers saying, where's the promise of his coming? You know, your Jesus said he was coming back, and it's been what? 2,000 years. Maybe he's forgotten. 
Maybe it's not going to happen. After all, today looks a lot like yesterday that looks a lot like the day and the year and the decade before. And the sinful tendency of men's heart is to see that a delay in the promise means the failure of the promise. But we know the reality. We know that the delay is patient and it's purposeful. We know that every day that Christ delays, people are saved. We know that every day that he delays, the warning continues to go out, the gospel continues to go out, that calls men and women to salvation. So for the disciple of Christ in any and every age, the call is to be ready. This is the most broad way of saying that because you don't know when the end will come, it has to change the way you live right now. There is no sense biblically where prophecy is given just for information, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. When God tells his people what is to come, it is meant to change their minds, change their hearts, and change the way that they live in that moment. The study of the end is always practical because knowing what is going to come has to change the way that we think and the way that we live. And because we know that the Master is coming, we, above all people, cannot be spiritually lazy. But what does it look like to be ready and watchful? And maybe what's the consequence for not being ready? And that comes to the second half of our text today. It's another picture, another illustration that highlights what it's going to mean to be ready. And this one in particular gives some very serious consequences for not being ready. Um, This one centers around a master and his servants who demonstrate either wisdom or wickedness. And this starts in verse 45. This time he opens with the illustration, and then he'll apply that in a moment. But here's the start of the picture in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? The illustration is that of a master of a wealthy household who has a number of servants, and he's given these servants particular tasks. And this word picture implies that the master, although he has prepared his servants, he's given them jobs to do, he is leaving for a time. And he hasn't told them when he is going to return. Now this first servant, this first servant that's pictured, has the responsibility of overseeing at least a portion of the master's house uh, to give them their food at the proper time. And the picture of this first servant is that he does what his master told him to do. He is faithful to the task that he has been called to. In fact, that's one of the two ways that this servant is described. Who then is the faithful servant? He does his duty because he's faithful to his master. His master's interests are his interests. His master's priorities are his priorities. His master's instructions are his template for how he lives his day-to-day life. And so he demonstrates that he's faithful, but it's interesting. Not only is he called the faithful servant, he's called a wise servant. We don't often join those two things together. But there is wisdom in obedience to the master. There is wisdom in recognizing the power and the position and the authority of the master. There is wisdom in responding rightly to that kind of power and authority. There's wisdom in understanding that because he does not know when the master will return, he is going to live in obedience at all times, and therefore he will always be ready. He not only demonstrates that he's faithful, he demonstrates tremendous wisdom in the right response to what the master has entrusted to him. And so when he comes, what's the result? When the master returns, it says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. When the master does come, although that it's a day and an hour when he doesn't expect, when the master does come, he brings blessing with him. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. The master is going to reward this wise and faithful servant with further stewardship, further responsibility, uh, further exalted position in his house. What's the parallel? It's not real hard to make the jump there. It's those who are wise and faithful servants of Christ are those who are found faithful and obedient when Christ returns. Not because they know when that is going to happen, but because they know that it is going to happen and they order their lives accordingly. So when he comes, it really makes no difference whether the master returns that day or the next or in a year from now. They're going to do what they've been asked to do. But what's the other side of that illustration? Not the wise servant, but this time there's a wicked servant. Verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, now stop there for a second. This servant is not faithful. He is not wise. But please also note that Jesus does not describe this servant as misled or misinformed. This servant is not obedient, but it is not because he does not have enough information. He is not disobedient because of outside circumstances. This is a heart problem. This is a wicked servant. And this wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. He sees the delay, and it's not an opportunity for service, but this delay is actually an opportunity to do exactly what he wants to do anyway. He sees that his master is delayed, and in verse 49, he begins to beat his fellow servants, and he eats and drinks with drunkards. He takes advantage of others. He is abusive to fellow servants in the household of the master. And he spends his time with those who are in open rebellion eating and drinking with drunkards. Now, if you've ever been around someone who is a drunkard, you know uh, that it is impossible to be a drunkard who is sober and ready. They're dull. They're potentially loud, potentially quiet, but they are anything but ready. Their senses are smothered by the effects of the drink, and that's what he's saying. The servant who spends time with these people is just like them. He is not ready. He cannot be ready. What's the result? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour when he does not know. What's the difference between the two servants here? Because if you think about it, the first one also experienced the coming of the master at an hour when he didn't expect and an, or a time when he didn't expect and an hour when he didn't know. Although when we think about it, that's not exactly true. The difference was that first servant always expected the master. Every hour was the expected hour. Every day was the anticipated day. And so when the master came, he wasn't shocked. Every task was done as if the master was coming soon to evaluate how that task was carried out. The second servant didn't lack any information that the first one had. The second servant didn't have any disadvantage when it came to knowing the plans of the master. No, the second servant's heart was simply exposed by the delay. So what's the application here? Although it's not explicit in the text, the command, the connection is pretty clear. To wait for Christ with wisdom and faithfulness will mean to wait for Christ with obedience. So what is it going to mean for the disciple of Christ to wait obediently for Christ? Well, what work has been given for disciples of Christ to do? 
lots of different places we can go, but very clearly in Matthew's gospel, those who are disciples of Christ are called to do things like preach the gospel and make disciples, right? That was what the disciples were given in Matthew chapter 10, very clearly. It's what Matthew ends the gospel account with, that great commission text that we will get to at some day if the Lord continues to tarry. He tells them, you are to be about the business of making disciples. And so for a disciple of Christ to wait faithfully and obediently for the coming of Christ will mean that we are continuing to preach the gospel so that we might make other disciples of Christ. What else have we been given to do? Well, according to places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, 1 Peter 4, disciples of Christ have been entrusted with the Master's gifts. They've been called to use those for the building up of the body, for the encouragement of the saints, for the well-being of one another. We are called to work according to the gifting that God has entrusted to us. You look through the New Testament, we're called to those dozens and dozens of one another passages that tell us what it ought to look like for the church to live in relationship with one another. To be a body of people that are about the business of encouraging, caring for, loving for, praying for, exhorting, equipping, confessing to one another. Those are all work that God has entrusted his people with until he comes. So the question really is whether or not there's any sense of urgency to our obedience. It's not because we don't know what we're supposed to do, as much as I think sometimes we come before God and we say, if only you told me what to do, then I would surely do it. We are not a people who lack information on what we've been called to do. Sometimes there's just no urgency behind our obedience. And that's where the closing of this little parable is sobering. Because what happens when the master returns and finds the servant unfaithful? So the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And when he comes, he brings judgment with him, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. The wicked servant can only anticipate judgment. And he's numbered with the hypocrites. Matthew's gospel has been specific in how it condemns the hypocrite. Uh, We just went through a couple of chapters ago in Matthew 23. What did Jesus say over and over? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And what did he call them? Hypocrites. Not a trick question. He called them hypocrites. He said, you brood of vipers, you pretend to be something you are not. What did they pretend to be? They pretended to be holy. And they were wicked. They pretended to be righteous but they were filthy. They pretended to have a relationship with God, to be the roadmap to fellowship with God, but in reality, they were utterly lost. They were totally condemned, and they were dragging people to the same judgment that they were going to face. But how does hypocrisy kind of come to light in this illustration? Very little bit of sanctified imagination. I would imagine that when the master was home, the servant did what he was told. I would imagine that in the presence of the master, the chores got done. But when the master was away, the true nature and character of that servant was revealed. I think the hypocrisy rests in the fact that he wasn't really a servant at all because a servant does the bidding of his master. A servant has the interest of his master at heart. He didn't care. He was simply waiting for an opportunity to do what he wanted to do anyway. And so he proved that he wasn't really a servant. He was a rebel in the middle of the household. And Jesus reserves the harshest judgment 
for those who would claim to do that. Hypocrites. The idea of cutting to pieces. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, to be found in rebellion when the Master comes is to find judgment. And this is not just a strongly worded letter of reprimand. This is not a harsh verbal warning. This is not a slap on the wrist. This is judgment, and this is eternal judgment. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, these are the outward signs of agony and torment. Jesus is reminding his disciples that to be ready for his coming is no small thing. All of this, knowing when the king comes, knowing that the king is coming again, has to drive his people to live lives of anticipation, obedience, so that when the king comes, we anticipate blessing and not the curse of judgment. And those pictures they're not really that difficult to kind of work through. There's not a lot of mystery in what Jesus was saying here. The application is stated, and the pictures themselves are very, very clear. The question is, how do we process these things? And above all, I think today we need to be reminded of the reality of brevity, (laughs) the reality of the fact that we are a vapor. Because what does this have to do with us? If Jesus was going to be delayed in his coming, why did it matter to the disciples that they would have to be ready? That's an interesting question, isn't it? If Jesus knew that he was going to be delayed, if the disciples weren't going to be around at the time of his coming and establishing his kingdom, why do they have to be ready? If we're a people who anticipate the coming of Christ, not in judgment, but in reward because we are his people, then why do we need these reminders to be ready? Well, the fact is that we need reminders that life is brief. That no matter what your specific position on the rapture, on the timing of the nature of the second coming, of the specific unfolding of all of these events, the fact is that we do not know. We do not know when those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him. We do not know when the birth pains will give way to the coming of the sign of the Son of Man and His appearing in glory and power and judgment. But maybe even more pointedly, you and I don't know how many days we've been entrusted with in this life, do we? Many of you were at a memorial service like I was yesterday. For a man who, although he was old and advanced in years, was called home to be with the Lord very suddenly. And you could not sit through that service without understanding that he was faithful. That he was ready. That it didn't matter what day or what hour the Lord would either come or call him home. Because his whole life was dedicated and given over to the fact that he lived for the sake of his master. The goal of his life was to please the Lord. And the reality is that this life is brief. Whether we are given eight years or 80 years, this life is a vapor. It's a mist. It is here and then gone in a moment. And so in closing... I want you to consider the end. Whatever that end might be, 
And you and I don't know what that is, whether that is the end of our life or the return of the Lord for his people. And I want you to ask the very serious and very sobering and very pointed question that only you can answer, and that is this, are you ready? Are you ready to stand before the king? I want you to evaluate this on maybe one of three types of people. Uh, There are some listening to this, either here with us today or online, who are outsiders, who are not servants. You're outside the master's house, and you understand that. You are outside of this thing that we call Christianity. Maybe you are a passive observer. Maybe you are a casual observer. Maybe you're a forced observer. I don't know what your situation is, but uh, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian, and you know it. Maybe all of this makes for a good story. Maybe all of this is helpful to show you how to be a nice person. Maybe all of this seems like a crutch for the weak-minded. But for you, I would plead with you to understand that one day you will stand before the Master. Whether you have ever called him Master or not, whether you have ever claimed to be part of his household or not, one day you will stand before the Son. See, God has set in your heart already the understanding that He exists. And God has already probed your heart with the reality that this life is not all that there is. And because God exists and because this life is not all that there is, I would implore you to consider eternity while you're on this side of it. Because that Master who is coming is coming again in power and in glory. That great God who created all things will reconcile all accounts to himself. And at one point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe you've imagined that the, following, that the cost of following Christ is too high, that it is going to cost you your identity, that it is going to cost you your employment, that it is going to cost you uh, your enjoyment. You won't want to be what you You won't be able to be what you want to be. And I promise you this, in one sense, the cost is higher than you can even imagine because it's going to cost you everything. Your will, your identity, your plans, your hopes, all of that to come to Christ is surrendered to who he is. It's laid down at the feet of the master, but here's the wonderful reality is that it's worth it. Because none of those things, your employment, your identity, your relationships, your pursuits, none of that lasts beyond the last breath that you take here, save for what is secured in Christ. And so in one sense, it costs you everything, and in a very real sense, it is the only thing of eternal value, and it costs you nothing because there was nothing you could do to earn it. Jesus Christ died for the sin that separated you from him in the first place. The master made a way for you to be a part of his household. And not merely as a servant or a slave, but as a son or a daughter of the king of kings. If you are outside the household of faith, consider whether you are ready to meet the master. Then there are some of us who would call ourselves servants. There are some who are like faithful servants, many that I can think of in this body. 
faithful servants who live with joy and anticipation of the coming of the Lord, faithful servants who work faithfully, who give themselves with their whole heart to the work that Christ has entrusted to them. And you know, you're not perfect, but you're wise and you're faithful. If that's you, excel still more. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't contemplate the time when you can come into spiritual retirement and coast until the king comes to grab you. Maintain faith. Carry on your work. Work as if the master was going to come at any moment and bring others along with you. Will you tell them about the joy and the peace and the security that comes from working faithfully? Will you tell them about the times where the Holy Spirit has sustained you? where he's equipped you to do exactly what he's called you to do? Will you make that discipleship a part of the life and process of this body as you serve faithfully and call others to do that alongside of you? Faithful servants, we need you. Maybe some of us are weary servants. You're a servant, you know the master, but you're tired. Because he said he's coming back, but the work that he's given you to do seems to be more than you can bear. And the promise of his coming sounds good, but sometimes it feels like it's coming too late to be of any good, any help to you. For you, take heart. Because the master's not only coming, but he's told us things about him. The master has told us that a faintly burning wick he's not going to snuff out, and that a bruised reed he's not going to break. Remember that the master is kind and patient and gentle. Remember that the master didn't leave you alone. That not only did he say he would never leave you or forsake you, but that he sent the spirit to dwell inside of you. And so those times, weary servant, when you are so burdened, so broken, and so weary that you don't even know the words to pray, to express your grief to the Father, that he's covered that as well, and that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And that as long as he's entrusted you with breath, with life, and with work to do that he never, not once, not even on your best day, expected you to do it in your own strength. But that he has equipped you to do what he has called you to so that he might receive the glory and the honor and the praise for it in the end. And so as you look at your life, and it is nothing but suffering, weary servant, remember what Peter, one of the men who is hearing this, would write later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6. He says, in this we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, we've been grieved by various trials, that's so that the genuineness of our faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Weary servant, this is producing something of eternal glory in you. Maybe some of you today are a distracted servant. You're a servant of the king, but the idea that the master is coming rarely comes to mind. And because you don't anticipate his coming, there's no sense of urgency to your obedience. The things of this world, the job, the relationships, the entertainment, uh, the sports, the school, whatever it is, just simply takes too much of your time for you to have any real focus on the king or on the work that he's left for you to do. To you, I would give a gentle but serious warning. There are wonderful things in this life that God has graciously given us for our enjoyment. But how often those good things are used by the enemy to become distracting things. 
because there is certainly nothing sinful about relationships, certainly nothing sinful about work, certainly nothing sinful about sports, about recreation, about school and education, nothing inherently sinful in any of those things, but how easily those things can occupy our minds and our hearts. See, the enemy of our soul has a way of using those as distractions, and while he can't touch our eternity, he can make us essentially useless while we wait. And the sad reality is that a huge portion of the church is actively trading eternal rewards for the pursuit of things that do not last. But if we are those who are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then everything else has to fall to a very distant second. Remember your calling. Remember the gifts that are entrusted to you and be ready. We sang a song. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You cannot sing that song. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus and then walk out the doors and pursue everything in the world and leave Jesus here. And finally, the last group of people, some listening to this might very well be like the servant who was ultimately numbered with the hypocrites. You would claim to be a servant of the master. You might claim that this is all true. That there is a God and that he is probably coming again. But every day that he's delayed isn't just used for distraction. Every day that he's delayed is ultimately used to pursue your own desires. Maybe you think you have time. Maybe you think you're young and you'll figure things out when you're older. Maybe you think you used to be young, but you feel pretty good, so at least you got a few more decades to get things in order. Maybe uh, you say, you know, I read all these things and I believe that, and when it seems like things are getting really, really bad in the world, then I will certainly take a stand. Or when things get really, really bad in my life, when I get really, really old, when my health gets really, really poor, then, you know, I'll have time to turn all of these things around. I beg you to reconsider. You do not know when the master will return. You do not know when your very life will be required of you and you will stand before the king and you will give account. But you have today. Maybe not even the rest of the day. I can't promise you that, but you have this moment. This moment to repent of your sin, to turn and follow him. This moment to confess your faults and failures. This moment to forsake the things of the world and to pursue what God has ultimately given to you. To be found obedient to the King of Kings when he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, time is a gift. And that's a hard thing to say for people who struggle through every moment of the day. But Lord, for those of us who are your servants, whether we are full of energy and enthusiasm and passion or whether we are beat down and broken by the world around us, comfort our hearts, encourage our hearts with the fact that you are coming and that you've given us a work to do. And that because you've given us the work, you'll sustain us through the work. Lord, for those who are considering, who are contemplating, for those who are 
maybe considering anything but this. I pray that you would bring their hearts to the place where they consider eternity. Lord, don't let anyone listening to this trade the temporary for the eternal. God, I pray that you would, that your gospel would penetrate stone-cold dead hearts and bring them to a new life in Christ. So, Lord, encourage those who serve well. Revive those who are faint and radically transform those who are dead so that we might be a people who eagerly anticipate the coming of the King. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.